personally laid on my heart for you guys. It's very, very simple. It's very, very simple. Um, but it's very, very important, and it's very, very, it's going to be very impactful for us as we go about our days following the Lord and entrusting Him with our lives. Um, but I want to start by sharing a story with all of you about one of the greatest earthly acts of love that I've ever experienced, and this is specifically through my dad. Um, you know, every, every single year in high school when I used to play baseball, um, I'm a pitcher, so I, I used to pitch in high school, we'd go to Destin, Florida, and we'd go there for a whole week, and you know, being a pitcher, you don't really pitch all the time. Like, you probably pitch like maybe once a week, and so it was very rare for me to actually step onto the mound and do something pretty cool. I had to take advantage of the opportunities that were, that were given to me. Um, so my mom and my sister, they came down to Destin with us, uh, but one person didn't, and it was my dad. Um, and I, I really love just like thinking back to this story because of how much it actually means to me now, and thinking back of how much it didn't mean to me at all back in the day, uh, it's crazy. Uh, but yeah, my dad wasn't there, and little did I know is that he was actually going to drive all the way down to Florida to see me pitch and to play baseball. And so I had to think, like looking back at this story, what were some of the factors that my dad to have, would have considered when leaving work? Um, you know, that's going to be a pretty long drive, all the way from Kentucky to Destin, Florida. Pretty long drive, a very expensive trip. You know, Lucas may not even pitch. It's not guaranteed that if my dad would show up that I would be pitching that day. You know, Lucas may not do the best at pitching. It's not going to be perfect. And my dad would have to leave immediately after seeing me pitch to drive back up to Kentucky to fulfill his work responsibilities. You know, that's why he wasn't there in the first place the whole week. He had to work. He had awesome responsibilities to fulfill, but he decided to take a break from that to drive all the way down to see me pitch. You know, all these factors are ex extremely valid for why he should not have made the trip to see me pitch. And, you know, some of the worldly expectations to make this trip actually worth it for my dad would maybe be that I would pitch the best game I've ever pitched in my life. Maybe a perfect game. You know, Lucas should pitch a, a full game's worth, or even more, multiple games throughout the week. And that Lucas should respond with the biggest hug and smile to imagine towards his dad. But that's not what happened. What actually happened is that I didn't pitch a great game. I only threw three innings, which is not a lot at all. It was against one of the worst teams I've ever thrown against, so it was terrible competition. And I only pitched that game the whole week in Florida. But the deal breaker was is that I didn't respond with any real source of gratitude towards my dad. This was not a trip worthwhile for anybody, but it was for my dad. And looking back, I see my dad's heart. I see his love for me, and that's why he made that trip. It's because he loved me. Did I deserve my dad's or did I, did I deserve my dad to make that trip? Absolutely not. Did I deserve my dad's love? I didn't. But he gave it to me anyways. And so what we're going to talk about today is the Father's love through the lens of the gospel. If you have your Bible with you, we're going to be going through all of Luke 15 today. It's going to be up on the screen later in the, later in the sermon. But before entering into this passage, I want to encourage you to set your heart and mind on the length and width the height and depth of God's love for you and God's love for the world. My prayer today is that all of you individually and collectively would go about your life consumed by the love of the Father. I'm going to pray. Um, Father God, we just thank you so much that we have this opportunity to come together as the body of Christ and learn from your word. God, I'm so thankful for your love. You just love us so, so much. And sometimes we take that for granted. And so I just pray today that we would go about consumed by the love of your son, consumed by the love that you give for us. And so, Lord, we love you so much. And I just pray that you would speak through me. Um, yeah, God, if there's anything that's not of you, let it just fall through the floor. May this, may this sermon, may, your, may what, we, what we take away from you today, what you want to teach us, may that be glorifying to your name. We just want to honor you with our lives. We want to love you as you have first loved us. So I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So yeah, before going into Luke 15, you need to know and believe these two things. I confidently believe that you need to know these two things. Ephesians 1, 5 through 6, it says, He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, 
to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. God says that you're valuable and worth loving. God says that you're valuable and worth loving. Two, Romans 5.8, but God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you with an everlasting love because he wants to. God loves you with an everlasting love because he wants to. And I want you guys to meditate and just be consumed by those two things, those two truths. Those may be hard for you guys to believe, but I believe they're true. God says that you're valuable and worth loving, and God loves you with an everlasting love because he wants to. And that's it. And so let's get into the passage. So I'm going to start with the first two verses of Luke 15. We're going to be looking at the context behind what we're going to be talking about today. So it says, all the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so a little bit of the context before Luke 15. So in the previous chapter, Luke 14, Jesus is strongly challenging a large number of people regarding the cost and commitment of following Christ. If you, if you want to look for yourself, Luke 14 is very, very challenging. And surprisingly, even in Jesus' strong challenges, we see that people were drawing near to hear from Jesus. Now, we don't know if the strong challenges are why people drew near to Jesus, but we do know that they did want to hear what Jesus had to say. But what we do confidently know is that these tax collectors and these sinners, the culturally despised, they came to Jesus for what? They came to Jesus for hope, for meaning, for purpose, for his love for them. And we also know that Jesus' word was also very, very offensive. He was very, very bold with what he said. And the religious leaders of the day did not like that. They didn't like that at all. And so it begs us to ask this question, well, why were the religious leaders so upset with Jesus? Well, they were upset with Jesus associating and identifying with sinners. They were upset he was receiving those despised the most. Why? Like, why would the religious leaders be so upset with that? It seems like that's a pretty good thing. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, they, what, they divided humanity into two classes, the unclean and the righteous. They decided to live as much as possible in complete separation from the unclean, the culturally unclean. And some rabbis of Jesus' day took this idea so seriously that they would withhold God's word to the unclean. They would withhold teaching God's word to the unclean. They were very separate from one another. And so the following three parables, they were spoken to the Pharisees and scribes, to the religious leaders, but also in the hearing of the multitude of tax collectors and sinners who drew near to Jesus to hear him speak. So therefore, who is this message for? It's for everyone. It's for all of us. It's for all of us to hear and to listen to. And so first we'll be going through the parable of the lost son, then the parable of the lost coin, then diving deeper into the love of the father through the parable of the lost son. So first, starting in verse 3, th verse 3 through 7, the parable of the lost sheep. It says, so he told them this parable. What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the ninety-nine in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. And coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors joyfully, saying to them, rejoice with me because I found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous people who don't need repentance. Wow, it's a good passage. Um, and in this parable, we see here that the shepherd goes after the lost one. Simply that the shepherd goes after the lost one. We see he leaves the 99 to retrieve the one. Sheep are pretty dumb. I think we could probably all agree with that. Sheep are pretty dumb. But what we see from the shepherd is that this dumb sheep that left has innate value. This dumb sheep that left has innate value and that this dumb sheep is worth going after. And this would probably be very confusing for the world to understand. The world would say to the shepherd something like, you already have 99 other sheep. You know, 
You don't need that one more sheep that's lost and has already left. But the good shepherd would respond with something like, you're right, like I don't need this one sheep, but I want this one sheep. I want this one sheep. This dumb sheep is worth going after. And the proportion is important, this 100 to 1, this is very, very important, but not the reason that the shepherd chased after the one. He chased after the one because he cared to do it. He cared for that one sheep that he loved. Not only does he go after it, but he doesn't stop until he finds it. Even in the sheep's escape, the shepherd finds no, no, reason, no, uh, no reason to stop pursuing it. He finds no reason to stop pursuing it. And we can also infer that if the shepherd did not take action to find this sheep, that this sheep would have been doomed. <laughs> I mean, maybe some wolves would have come and ravished it or something, eaten it up. We have no idea, but it was probably going to be doomed. We need a good shepherd to chase after us like this one in this passage. And we also see in this passage that with joy, the shepherd carries his found sheep on his shoulders. And finally, we see that one sheep that is found, that one sheep is his and he will rejoice with his neighbors over that one sheep which was found. If you guys didn't know already, we're the sheep, and Jesus is the good shepherd. In John 10, 14 through 16, it says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. But I have other sheep that are not from the sheep pen. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock, one shepherd. You know, just like the shepherd in this parable. Jesus is actively, always seeking, always chasing after us, and he won't stop. The one that is found, again, is Jesus' own possession. And with joy, Jesus carries us on his shoulders. With joy, the Father willfully sends the Son to the cross to die on our behalf. And we can't do anything except just let him pick us up. Romans 5, 6 says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We were helpless. We needed a good shepherd to chase after us. We needed a good shepherd to pick us up. All we had to do was let him. And the emphasis Jesus leaves for the religious leaders here is the joy of finding the lost and bringing them back into God's family. The religious leaders weren't joyful at all when sinners drew near to Jesus. But guess who was? Jesus. Jesus was joyful when these sinners and tax collectors drew near to him. And so let's move on to the next parable, the parable of the lost coin, starting in verse 8. It says, Or what woman who has ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found the silver coin I lost. I tell you, in the same way, there's joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. Again, just like the sheep, these coins, they have innate value. And that one coin that is lost doesn't lose its value just because it is lost. You know, we lose a penny today just on the side of the road and we just walk by it. We ignore it. But this woman loses one silver coin and she doesn't stop until she finds it. And we can probably infer from this passage that this woman actually expects to find this lost coin. The woman hasn't lost her ownership of this lost coin either. Just because she lost it doesn't mean she lost her ownership of it. And in a sense, the lost actually belong to God. Whether they know that or not, or even whether they like that or not. The lost belong to God. This coin was her possession as we are God's possession whether we are with him or whether we're not. God still has authority over our lives. We can just choose whether to submit to him as Lord or su submit to him not as Lord. In the proportion of one coin to ten coins, it's still important here, but again, not the reason why this woman searched for the lost coin. She searched for the lost coin because she cared to find it. This coin was important to her. We see in this passage that she actually took initiative to find the coin. It says, what'd she do? She lights a lamp. She sweeps the house, and she searches carefully until she finds it. It's as if she's using the word of God, the light of God, and the spirit of God to seek after this lost coin, to find it. And Jesus is pointing out to us that seeking after the lost took endurance. It took strength and patience, willingness, 
hope and love that can only come from the Holy Spirit, that can only come from the Spirit of God. And what does she do after she finds the coin? She rejoices. She rejoices. And she actually wants everyone to know about it. How rejoiceful is it when that you see that your faith produces fruit by the power of the Holy Spirit? How rejoiceful is that? How awesome is that, that the Holy Spirit wants to do something through us and partner with us in that? Think about yourself and about your personal story and how you came to know Jesus as King. All of heaven has rejoiced when you repent, when you repented and put your faith in Jesus as King and Savior, when you were lost and had been found. That's so cool to think that all of heaven was rejoicing when we decided to put our faith in Jesus. I hope that we can believe that. And in this, Jesus is relaying to the religious leaders that God's family, they're going to rejoice together. They're going to rejoice together in this. From these two parables, we see that there is worth in individual souls through the heart and love of God. It was for one sheep the shepherd went to find. It was for one coin the woman searched the house for. And as I continue into the parable of the lost son, as Jesus reveals even more the Father's heart and the Father's love for you, I want to remind you again to set your heart and mind on what we've been talking about here already. So let's go into it. Starting in verse 11, we're going to end at 24. He also said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country, and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here, I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up, and he went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with a feast. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. You should see a diagram up on here later, but when looking over this passage, I saw the gospel. And specifically, I saw the three-circle diagram that a lot of us have on our phones when we're sharing the gospel. And um, it's a very visual way of how we can understand the gospel, how we can see the gospel, and how we can share the gospel. And this three-circle diagram is very important to, important to me, enough for where I have it tattooed on my leg, so I'm very excited to share this with you guys. Um, and with this passage, we are going to be specifically looking into the Father's heart and love through the lens of the gospel. So as we go through the, the gospel diagram, we're going we're to be having images over each specific part, starting with the heart. But Jesus makes it very clear that the Father represents God here. And the younger son represents the sinners and tax collectors gathered to hear from Jesus. And personally, I find myself relating to the younger son a lot. And you might too. And so really try to, try to think about and try to meditate on, like, where are you at in this passage? And where could you be? So let's get into it. So the gospel starts with God's love for us. Big heart. As sons and daughters yourself, just like the lost son in this parable, we all might have asked this question before. Why was I brought into this world? <laughs> why am I here? Or to go even further, why would God even create me? Within this question itself, one must ask, does God even need me? Does the Father need me? Simply, no. <laughs> God does not need you. That may be hard to hear, but God does not need you. Our perfect, all-knowing, all-powerful God does not need you. 
He does not exist depending on you. He is the creator of all creation, the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. In fact, we need him. We need God. We need the Father. So then we must follow that question with another question. Does God want me? It begs that question. Does God want me? Simply, yes. God absolutely wants you. And the Father bringing the Son into this world, he does not need his Son. But he desperately wants his Son. And God creating us individually and collectively, bringing us into this world, he does not need us. But he desperately wants us. God created us out of the love of his own heart for us. He loves us and he loves you. So therefore, if God created us out of pure, unconditional love, out of the desire of his own heart, then we were made for a purpose. What is that purpose? I think Jesus makes it very clear to us here in this parable. As the purpose for the, for the Son is just as much our purpose as well with God. To be in relationship with the Father. To be in relationship with the Father. And two, to reflect his great image of glory. I truly am convinced that that is our simple purpose of why we are here on this earth. So that we can be in relationship with God and that we can reflect his image. We were made in his image. He wants us to reflect his great image of glory. And he wants a relationship with us. In terms of the lost son, he had everything he needed. He had everything he wanted being with the father, but he chose to go his own way. And the father clearly illustrates God's love for us here. As his love allowed rebellion and respected his son's human will to go his own way. The father knew that the son made a foolish and greedy request, yet allowed him to go his course nonetheless. And so I want you guys to see here that our loving father is not some genie in a bottle that we go and ask wishes for so he can grant for us. He, our, our father's not hoping and not looking for a transactional one-sided relationship. I'm sure for yourselves, you, you could probably like think of a transactional one-sided relationship that maybe you're in right now and how that just sucks. Like we want to be in a mutual relationship with one another. And so therefore our loving father is not seeking for that, but he's seeking for a mutual loving relationship between himself and his own creation. And in a mutual relationship, one is not going to force the other to love them back. And so therefore God's heart is good in giving us into our own desired ways allowing us to choose him or to choose the world apart from him, which is why we ran. We ran. We decided to go the other way. And so like the younger son in this parable, we chose to go our own way and to separate ourselves from God. And that separation started with sin. We can probably recall many reasons for why we did run away from God, but I think simply, even uh, going back to, to Grant's sermon a couple weeks ago or last week about independence, the reason we ran away from God, like the son, he, he ran away to be independent from him. And like the son, we sometimes convince ourselves that we don't need God anymore. We're good on our own. We can do life all by ourselves. We can satisfy ourselves on our own. We can get ourselves to heaven. The son specifically left to live a life of independence apart from his father. And what did he do? He wasted all of it away for foolish living, the prodigal life. And this foolish living appeared desirable it looked good to him, and I guess it was fun while it lasted, but in, in that comment itself, and me saying that, it implies that there's always going to be an end to the fun. The son left for independence, not realizing that we all depend on something. We all depend on something, but unfortunately the son depended on himself and the ways of the world that, that failed him completely, utterly failed him completely. And like Adam and Eve, they had everything with the father in the garden, and what did they do? They chose to waste it away to be the gods of their own lives. That they may ultimately be in control. But their sin came with a punishment. It came with an end. Their very own death. Romans 6.23, the very first part of it says the wages of sin is death. What does that mean? It means that we earn death. A wage is something you earn. Like I, I earn death because of my sin. We all earn death because of our sin. And in that, in going our own way, like the younger son, we find ourselves left in our own brokenness. A bunch of squiggly lines, continuing to be separated from God. And so let's take a look into the brokenness of the younger son. 
the son, what did he do? He spent everything. He was stuck in a severe famine. He had nothing. And in missing one thing, his innate purpose of being in relationship with the father, he lacked therefore everything. He lacked everything. He was not full and he was left empty. And so you got to think about him having nothing. He had nothing physically. He had nothing emotionally. And he had nothing spiritually. Physically, he, he had nothing. No money, no home, nothing to eat. Nothing emotionally, no family, no father, nobody. He was alone, just himself to lean on. That would, that would suck. That would be terrible. He was probably suffering from worry. He was probably suffering from anxiety. Probably suffering from depression. He had nothing spiritually. He had no lordship over his life. He had no God, no father, no direction, no satisfaction, no fulfillment, no hope. Only complete sin and separation from his father with no righteousness at all to walk in. We see that the son longed to eat the pods that the pigs themselves were eating. And according to Jewish standards back in the day, to any righteous Jewish person like these religious leaders, this was unacceptable and very, very offensive. You know, the son would be considered a disgrace to society because of what he was doing with the pigs, longing for what they had to eat. And he was, a, he was a disgrace to the religious leaders here. I can just imagine the religious leaders hearing this from Jesus and going, oh, whoa, like, that's a terrible guy right there. Don't want to associate myself with him. And with Jesus sharing this story to the religious leaders, I think what he really wanted to emphasize for us and for the religious leaders at that time was he wanted to press into the redemption story that he came to give us. To save the lost. To heal the sick. From what? From sin. From eternal death and from eternal separation from God. That's what Jesus wanted to show them. The son left believing in the prodigal life, believing in the life of the world, believing in the life that everyone tells you to live, to go and live for yourself. That's a lie. <laughs> he believed in a lie. And now he was indulging in this life that resulted in nothing. Not one person would give the son anything. And so just looking into the son's heart and what he was longing for, the son was ultimately looking for someone to care for him. Someone to show him mercy. Someone to show him grace. Someone to show him compassion. He was truly looking for someone who had a source of love. The son's misery drove, drove him to consider eternity. Where the source of his fulfillment could actually come from. Which leads the son to remember his good, loving, and holy father. And like the last two parables, we see the love and heart of God. And him not stopping until... Who, the one who was lost was found again. And so I see here in this brokenness that God does not want to leave us in our brokenness. We see in his heart that God does not want to leave us in our brokenness. Do you believe that? God does not want to leave us in our brokenness. And so, therefore, in recognition of our brokenness, like this lost son, we seek to repent to change our mind and return to the one who could save us. So this little stick figure guy, he looks like he's praying. I call him the repent and return guy. So we see here that the son remembered his father and looked into the lives of those in the father's house that were filled with everything the son was longing for. The servants of the father had everything that the son wanted. Everything, everything the son needed. And he looked into the lives of them and saw the heart of the father he also saw the state of himself, truly dying, separated from his father. And instead of blaming the father for allowing, to, allowing him to go his own way, he recognized the father's love for him. You know, sometimes we may put other responsibility on somebody else for the bad things that we've done, for the sin that we've committed. But this son took responsibility. He knew that his father was for him, and that he had every right to forsake him. But his father wouldn't. The son realized that he himself had forsaken the father. And the son, in his change of heart and mind, he rehearsed a repentance speech to and for the father. So he was repenting, verbally repenting. And we can even see in his verbal repentance, this was, this was a heart thing. Like he was repenting from his heart. In this speech, we see that the son realizes his unworthiness. How he is undeserving of his father. I see in Romans 3.12 it says, All have turned away, all alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. 
That's crazy. So in this, the son was unworthy, just as we are unworthy. But that doesn't mean that the son ever lost his value. It doesn't mean that we ever lost our value. This son had value in the father's heart and eyes. And just because the son had previously left doesn't mean the son ever lost value in the sight of the father. We see in his repentance that he's ready to confess his sin in complete humility, accepting his position as a sinner in need of a savior, of a good father. We see that he's ready to commit to the father that the son cannot obtain eternal life and completion by himself. He even makes a request for the father to make him like one of his hired servants. It's like he wants to be made new. With all humility, the son just wants to be made new. He wants to be born again. He just wants to be back with his good, loving father. With all humility, the son actually wanted to die to himself so that he may actually live. He didn't just want his stuff back. He didn't just want to be back in comfortable conditions. He truly just wanted his father in hopes of his father wanting him. The son knew that if he stayed in this state of brokenness, that he would surely die. And so he did something about that. He actually wanted to do something about that. And he turned to his father who could save him. Even knowing very well that his father could just turn away. He could just turn his back to him and do absolutely nothing for him. The father had every right to do so. The son didn't deserve help at all. And so the son went even knowing the father very well could do so. And in the previous two parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin, Jesus emphasizes at the end, rejoicing over one sinner who repents. The lost son demonstrates the repentance that Jesus specifically spoke of in the previous parables. That by faith, we would repent and we would return. To turn away from the world and to turn to the Father. By faith, the son got up. The son got up. He did it. And he went to his father. By faith, the son got up and went to his father. Which brings us to the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. That God didn't want to leave us in our brokenness, but he sent Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to dwell among us and to live the perfect life that none of us could live. What did he do? He performed miracles. He proclaimed that the kingdom of God was here. And he went to the cross willingly to die in the place that we deserved. And the wrath of God was satisfied upon Jesus. And then, then three days later, after his death, Jesus raised from the dead, defeating death so that we may have complete forgiveness of our sins. That we would be restored. That we would be redeemed. That we would be renewed into our purpose of being in relationship with God. The veil was torn. It was torn in two so that we could have direct access to the Father. That we would be saved. That we would be given eternal life. This is the good news of the gospel. It was nothing that we could ever do for God. It was everything that he could do for us. Through the power of the gospel, the Father here shows the Son that he saw him. Through the power of the gospel, the Father showed the Son that he saw him. And that God sees us. The father saw him from afar and ran to him. This was urgent. The father is so quick to come to us before we ever come to him. And it's not even a competition. That's just who our God is. That's how bad he wants us. The father saw him full of compassion. There's this Greek word. I looked into the Greek of what the, the word compassion for. I have no idea how to say it. But the definition for it is to be moved as to one's bowels. It's as if you go down a roller coaster or something and your stomach just drops. Move to your gut. Hence to be moved with compassion. That's what the father felt when he saw his son. It was an exciting feeling. Seeing his son return. And so the father here in this story, he never hesitated with his son. So why should God hesitate with us? Why would God ever hesitate with us? We see that through the power of the gospel, the father shows the son that he was eagerly waiting for his return. God is eagerly waiting for our return, for us to come back to him. The father knew his son's brokenness, just like he allowed it. And he could probably see it from afar as he was walking back to the father. The father knew the son was returning to him, the dirtiest that he's ever been. Not only physically rolling around with pigs, but spiritually, emotionally. This son was dirty. 
But in this picture, the father wasn't worried at all about how dirty the son was. He was just so glad that he had returned. He was so glad. And from this son's return, we need to understand that the father wants you to come to him now. If you've not come to the father, if you've not accepted Jesus into your life, if you've not made him king, he wants you to come to him now. That's his desire. He doesn't want you to wait so that you can go and clean yourself up. He is the one who cleans you up. So if you have to go to him the dirtiest that you've ever been, go to him the, the dirtiest you've ever been. That's what he wants. He wants to do the cleaning in your life. He wants to save you. We see that the father's love waited and never forgot. The father's love never forgot his son. It was love that fully received his son, not putting his son on some source of probation. This was remarkable love because of the disgrace that the son had brought to his family. We see that through the power of the gospel, that his love for us has the power to completely forgive and completely restore. The father showed acts of intimacy, evidence of a mutual relationship, just like we talked to before. A mutual relationship with the father wanted from us. And before the son even gets a word out, we see the father's heart for his son, that the father embraced him. He embraced him with forgiveness. He embraced him with love, with purpose. John 17, 3. Jesus prays and says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. His purpose was restored in that one moment. He embraced him with value, with grace, with mercy, with kindness. And I want to repeat that again. He embraced him with forgiveness, with love, with purpose, value, grace, mercy, kindness, and so much more just in that one moment. This wasn't just something for the father to build up to. Be like, oh, you came back, like, I'll wait to, to show you these things. These were immediate. Through the lens of the gospel, this forgiveness and restoration wasn't some temporary or one-time thing. This forgiveness was immediate and eternal by the blood and power of Jesus Christ. That in this, through the power of the gospel, the son is worth saving, the son is worth forgiving, and the Son is worth loving with an everlasting love. So therefore, through the power of the gospel, we are worth saving, we are worth forgiving, and we are worth loving with an everlasting love. This Son was worth these things not by anything that he could ever do for the Father, but because the Father says so. Because the Father says so. That's it. No arguments. No if, and, or buts. Because the Father says so. We are worth everything to God, in Christ, because he loves us. Because he wants to give us worth through the cross, through Jesus alone. Which brings us to a very newstick figure. It's a pretty, pretty happy guy, I would say. I call this guy the new creation guy. And because of his complete forgiveness and love for us, by the blood Jesus shed for us on the cross, and the death he defeated by his resurrection, if we believe in Jesus... If we make him king, like the son returning to his father by faith, we would become new creations in Christ, born again to inherit the kingdom of God, eternal life. The father, in his son's return, clothes him, him, the son, with the honor and glory that the son doesn't deserve whatsoever, but that the father wants to give him anyways. We see in the passage that the father clothed him with the best robe, a ring, Sandals for his feet. A he even brought a fattened calf for a feast of celebration. This was a big feast, a very important feast. He showered his son with love as his identity was restored completely. The father did much more than just merely meet his son's needs. And by the grace and mercy of the father, this son was found. This lost son was found. This dead son was alive again. The son was saved by grace through faith, brought back into his father's family, clothed in all righteousness, inside and out, completely cleansed. He was again in relationship with his father. What, what he was made for, he was again in, in relationship with his father. And in this, the father's saving grace deserves a celebration for the one who was dead and now is alive. The Father's saving grace deserves a celebration. 
This was so much more worth rejoicing than over a lost sheep or a lost coin. This was finding a lost son made in the image of God, a son who was back from the dead. Jesus beautifully expressed and shared the love of the Father through the lens of the redeeming power of the gospel. Um, That's the gospel. That's what I saw when reading through this passage and when preparing this sermon for you guys. We saw the Father's heart and love through, through the redeeming power of the gospel. And I could just end my sermon here, but Jesus doesn't end the parable here. The gospel is the best story ever. This is a true story, the best story, but it requires a response. And I want to ask ourselves this question. How will you react to the good news about who God is? How will you react to the Father's love? You know, some people in this room will respond with joy by coming to the Father willfully. But others will sadly reject this and actually be very disturbed by the heart and love of the Father. You know, as the younger son reacts appropriately to the heart of the father, understanding his heart, there's another son, plot twist, the older one, who reacts differently to the heart of the father. And some of us may actually find ourselves reacting similarly to the heart of the father as the older son did. So let's dig into the older son's response. Starting in verse 25, towards the end of the passage. Now his older son was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, look, I've been slaving many years for you, and I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came... Who has devoured your assets with prostitutes? You slaughtered the fattened calf for him? Son, he said to him, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. I saw something very, very unique in this passage from the older son. Something that we can, we can infer. And with the older son, he somewhat accuses his father, he accuses his father of overlooking the younger son's sin. He's accusing him that the father didn't even recognize the dirt that the younger son was rolling in. But that's not the case at all. The father 100% acknowledges and knows his younger son's sin. He knows his sin. And like I said towards the beginning of this parable, the father allowed this allowed his son to go his own way of the prodigal life. So he knew what he was getting himself into. He knew that he had sinned and fallen short. So in fact, what the older son actually overlooked with the father is the father's powerful forgiveness, is the father's love. What he overlooks is that the younger son wasn't forgiven for any work he could ever do to repay the father. He was forgiven by grace through faith. Simply by grace through faith. The younger son had returned purely by faith. And so the older son overlooked the powerful forgiveness of the father. You know, and there was actually a sense in this, in this parable, at the end of the parable, in which the older son was actually very obedient to the father, yet far from his father's heart. In this sense, the older son was actually a perfect illustration of the religious leaders who were angry that Jesus received tax collectors and sinners. There's this quote by a scholar named Morgan it says, his story reveals the possibility of living in the father's house and failing to understand the father's heart. The older son, and now we can say the religious leaders, failed to understand that the father, our father in heaven, he has a nature. And that nature is to rejoice and to celebrate those who were dead and now are alive in Christ. And in the older son's lack of celebration for the dead being raised, What did he lack? He lacked thankfulness. He lacked gratitude. He failed to appreciate the heart of the Father. There's this quote that says, Every day he had his father's company in the blessed society of home. His father's love was round about him constantly, and everything the father had was his. Yet, the proud and the self-righteous always feel 
that they are not treated as well as they deserve. So what I take away from this is that the son thought that life was all about him. Just as the, the religious leaders were all about themselves. They were stuck in pride. Like that's pride. That's sin. So even in the older son's pride, what did the father do? The father still loved him so dearly. And he called him son with such tenderness, such kindness, such affection. He called him son. The father's love answers the complaint of the religious leaders that began the chapter. That they had no reason to complain. And they had every reason to rejoice. We see here in what Jesus is saying that no one is too far gone for the father to save. That may be hard for us to believe. But I'm going to say it again. No one is too far gone for the Father to save. The Father's love is too grand and too everlasting to ignore you from being loved and saved by sufficient grace. He loves you and values you that much. He paid the perfect price needed for you to be with him. And so in seeing the Father's heart and love for all of us, I have this final question. Why should the Father forgive the Son? Why should God forgive you and me? Because he wants to. That's it. Because he wants to. The Father wants to forgive you because he wants to. And so this requires a response. Just, just like I was talking about before with the older son's response. This required, the gospel requires a response. And so I have some applicable things of what we can do. How can we respond to the Father's love for us? First, go to him. Simply go to the Father. Go to God. It's that simple. Some of us aren't willing to let God put on that robe of love, that robe of forgiveness, that robe of honor and glory to cover all of your shame. Some of us aren't willing to do that, to let him put that robe on. You know, some of us, and probably all of us, have once believed in this lie. You're not valuable or worthy, or enough in Christ. But the truth is that you are valuable. We've seen through this passage, you are valuable. You are worthy, and you are enough in Christ Jesus. So let him put that dang robe on you. Let him put it on, because he wants to put it on you. He wants to cover every single part of wickedness, shame, and sin in your life. Go to him. Two, Matthew 22, 37 through 39 says, he said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart. This is very familiar. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. It would only be appropriate for the Father's love for us that we would go, therefore, and love him and love others. In these commands, I believe Jesus wants to emphasize for us that loving God in relationship with God and loving people is both loving God himself, is both bringing glory to his name. And so I don't want us to get that wrong, that they're, they're not separate, but they're actually together. Loving God and loving people is both loving God and bringing glory to his name. So I want to emphasize that for you guys. That's what Jesus emphasized for me. And so first I want to hit on how we can love God in relationship with him. It's first through prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 says it perfectly. Paul emphasizes in this passage to pray constantly, to pray without ceasing, to pray thankfully that this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Prayer is the way that we can communicate with God and how God can communicate with us. God wants that for us. He tore the veil in two. We have direct access to the Father why, why just not use that gift that God has given us? Let's pray and let's talk to our Father. Let's listen from Him. And let's just sit with the Father in prayer. It's so good. Two, we can love God in relationship with Him by spending time with God through His Word. Psalm 1-2 says, Instead, His delight is in the Lord's instruction, and He meditates on it day and night. I just love that. He meditates on the word of God day and night. There's other scripture that says like God will write 
his word on our heart of flesh. His word is that valuable. It's that living, that effective, sharper than any two-edged sword. His word is for you. He wants you to read it so that you can grow closer to him. That's it. He wants, to grow in his, he wants you to grow in his relationship with him through his word. The Bible is so good. It's one of my favorite ways that I can spend time with God. The ways that I can love him more is by spending time with God through his word. And three, this is a sleeper. Silence and solitude. If you guys don't know about our Luke 6, 12 night, it's like every month uh, on a Friday night, we like to just pray and sit in silence and just be with the Father. Luke 6, 12 says, During those days he went out to the mountain to pray and spent all night in prayer to God. That's Jesus. Jesus spent all night in prayer to God. That's awesome. Um, I, 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 like multiple times in the Gospels, Jesus just goes off by himself so that he can just be with the Father. And I think that's something we may forget sometimes in our relationship with him, to spend alone time with him. You know, it's like if we have a best friend or something, we want to make that one-on-one time with them to specifically pour into them and for them to pour into us. God wants that with us too, for us to go out with him and to just pray, to sit in silence and to meditate on his word. He wants to speak into our lives. You know, Revelation, in Revelation 2 and 3, at the end of each church that Jesus addresses, Jesus says, let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to their churches. The Spirit wants to speak to the church. He wants to speak into your life. Are your ears open? Do you want to listen to God? And fourth, worship. You know, like what we did before with musical worship and what we're about to do now with musical worship. It's really good. Um, but even in other worship, like it's, it's still worship. Uh, but Romans 12.1 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. So we can worship God by presenting our bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That's awesome. As believers in Jesus, we choose to take up our cross daily, our torture device, to deny ourselves and to follow him, trusting in the Lord to lead us in life. And by trusting him always, by walking in faith, by following him, we worship Jesus in spirit and truth. That is our true worship. That's how we can love God. And five, obedience. Obedience. We can love God through our obedience. John 15, 9 through 10 says, As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Why do we keep God's commands? It's because we love him. <laughs> and they're good. We know that God's commands are good and for us. John 14, 15 puts this perfectly. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. I used to see that as like a threat. Like, oh, if I love God, like I, I have to. No, it's like, it's a promise. It's a guarantee that if we love God, it's only nature for us as sons and, and daughters of God to obey our king. It's only natural by our love that we go forward keeping his commands. And if we love God, we will keep his commands. Do you believe that? So next, like loving people. Loving people is awesome. It's an awesome way that we can love God is by loving people. Number one, I want to talk about humility. Ways that we can love people is by being humble. Philippians 2, 3-4 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. And I want to emphasize for you guys that this is not saying that you can't look into your own, into your own interests. But what Paul is, is saying to us, to the church, is that we should also look into the interests of others. That we should consider others as more important than ourselves. Like that's, that's humble. Like that's humility. It's one of the greatest ways that we can love people. And I just want God's words like speak to you through these passages that I'm showing you. So as you're writing these down, just think like how can God use me in these ways to love him more as I'm loving people? Two, to love those in the world by sharing the gospel. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world 
in this way, he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. This is one of the greatest, if not the greatest way that we can love others is by sharing the gospel. Like God sent Jesus and he loved the world so that he could die for the whole world. Past, present, and future sin. God loves you that much. God loves the world that much. And so let's love the world that much by sharing the good news of the gospel. Let's not pass up on that opportunity that God wants to to bring in our life and bearing fruit. Let's love the world by sharing the gospel. Love those in the world by sharing the gospel. Three, sacrificial love. Sacrificial love is awesome. 1 John 3, 16 through 18 says, This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. Thinking about like Jesus going to the cross, I don't think Jesus had this like hateful attitude or this like, dang it, like I have to go die for the world that I love so much. That stinks. It's like, yes, like that was hard for him to die on the cross. It's the most brutal and painful death in all of history. But he also said, like, let your will be done, Father. Like he wanted to die on the cross on our behalf. And he was willing to die on our behalf with complete, intimate, worthwhile, sacrificial love for us. And so I want to help you guys see that when we love people, that it's an honor and privilege to sacrificially love for one another. It's an honor and a privilege to sacrificially love for one another. John 15, 12 through 13 says, Jesus says, This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. It's so beautiful. And lastly, I, I, I could go into a whole list of things, but I want to end with forgiveness. Like the ways that we can love others by loving God is, is through forgiveness, forgiving others. 1 Peter 4.8 says, Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. You know, if Jesus, in his perfection, was willing to die on the cross for us, so that we may be forgiven, what's holding us back from forgiving others? Like, what's, what's holding us back from doing that? It should be that easy for us to actually step into forgiveness. And it, it is hard. But like, even as Jesus says, like, leave, leave your gift at the altar and go reconcile with your brother or sister. Just like in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass, who trespass against us. Let's learn to forgive our brothers and sisters and loving them that way because that brings love and honor and glory to God. And so worship team, you can come back up here as I pray. Um, but I want to encourage you all to remember and understand these two things about the, the, the Father's heart and love for you. If you guys don't take anything from this, I want you guys to take these two things. These two things are valuable and worth understanding, worth knowing, worth believing for our identity in Christ. One, God gives you value and worth because he feels like it. God gives you value and he gives you worth because he feels like it. That's it. God gives you value and worth because he feels like it. And number two, God loves you with an immeasurable, everlasting love because he wants to. God loves you with an immeasurable, everlasting love because he wants to. So I hope you guys can walk away just so consumed by the love of the Father today. Um, we're going to have people praying while we're worshiping. So if you guys need prayer, and want, want to talk through like the heart and love of the Father and understanding the heart and love of the Father and how you can respond to that. You should. Like, go and get prayer. Prayer is so powerful. So I'm going to pray. Um, Father God, I just thank you so much for this awesome day that we get to worship you. Lord, your love is so, so good. It's, it's so crazy that you, your, your word affirms the fact that you give us value and worth because you feel like it. Like that's your nature. That's who you are. 
that God, you love us with an immeasurable, everlasting love because you just want to. That's who you are. You are a good, perfect, loving, holy Father, Lord. And we just love you so much. We just want to worship you with our lives. And God, I just want to just ask that, just as, as the body of Christ, as the church, that we would go about just so consumed by your love, so consumed by your heart, that we would not, we would not just leave this building just with, with this like, oh yeah, like God's love, he loves me. But God, just so consumed by your love. That the simplicity of your love would be so powerful in our hearts. And that we would do something about that. We would go to you. God, if there's anybody in this room that hasn't let you put that robe on you, or robe on them, God, that they would, they would let you put that robe on them. That robe of righteousness. That robe that covers all of their shame, all of their sin. God, affirm our identity that, that can only be found in Christ. God, we're so thankful that you died for us through Jesus. You sent your one and only son to die for us. That God, you demonstrated your love for us and while we were still sinners, you died for us. And so we love you, Lord. Help us to love you more and help us to love others as you have first loved us. I pray this all in your son's awesome name. Amen.